Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? I remember when I was a child waking up in the morning to a dark, chilly house. My sisters and I would race to get to the coveted spot right in front of the heating vent. I usually lost out. Our house, built in the 60s, was warmed by burning oil from a tank buried in the backyard. The house and the tank are gone, but I'm pretty certain most of the homes on the block still use fossil fuels for heating, as do millions of houses and apartments across Canada. Change, though, is coming, albeit slowly. It's been a bit boom and bust, and and therefore it's not actually, I think, shown its true potential. But the pioneers of a new energy frontier, heating without fossil fuels, are embracing their role. There's definitely people that come over to the house and check out the system that we've got. We're planning for our future generations so that we can say we did something about it. This week, staying home and staying cozy without cost to the planet. That, along with the power of a name, in this case, natural gas. The feelings that people had about natural gas were mainly positive. But on the other hand, when we asked about methane gas, the feelings were mostly negative. When we talk home heating, there are different kinds. In Canada, the latest figures show 43% of homes use natural gas. And as we'll hear later in the program, diesel generators are still in the mix. And some homes, like Ian Manning's in Berwick, Nova Scotia, have used oil furnaces for heat. Hi, Ian. Hi, how's it going? Good. Um, Tell me, I've looked at some pictures of Berwick. It looks like a beautiful, charming little place. What does your house look like? Can you describe it for me? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, My house is a pretty small house by local standards. It's uh, built in probably the 1940s. It's a one and a half story, pretty straightforward looking house in in the small town of Berwick, Nova Scotia. And, And is it quite an old house then? Yeah, so I guess it would be between 70 and 80 years old. Now, when you bought your home, what kind of heating did it have? So it had uh, forced air oil heating. So there was a furnace in the basement with a blower. So it would burn oil for the heat. And then that heat would be distributed through the house with the existing ductwork. That's probably fairly typical of when it was built. Now, where was the oil coming from? Um, the oil, there was a tank in the basement. So somebody would come every couple of months and uh, copper up through the pipe on the outside. So you decided to change all of this and install a heat pump. Why? Uh, there's a couple different reasons. Uh, the first thing is is that having the heat pump gives us a flexibility where we have heat in the winter and, and cooling in the summer, which is really, really nice. And also, too, um, just for both uh, my wife and I, myself, when we moved into the house, we were both keen on reducing our, our reliance on fossil fuels. And one of the cool things about the town we live in is that it's got its own electric utility. They have a pretty good supply of, of green energy for being such a small town, so... What, what kinds of green energy does it does Berwick offer? Uh, they have a, a share of a wind farm not too far away and also a, a hydroelectric dam just up on South Mountain. Okay. How much does the heat pump cost? 
Um, it was pretty expensive to install. Ballpark number was around $16,000 total. Wow. Was that a barrier for you when you first looked at it? Well, yeah, not so much. Uh, luckily, they had a program in town where we were able to finance the, the heat pump through the town. So rather than borrow the money from the bank, we borrowed it from the town itself uh, through a program they were offering there. So in fact, the town paid for the heat pump. That's right. Yes. And you're paying it back? That's right. Yeah. I'm curious, if the program hadn't existed, would you have got a heat pump installed anyway? I think we would have made the switch somehow. We just didn't really have to think about how to find the money because the opportunity was already there. When are you going to have it all paid off? Uh, it's a 10 year, <laughs> it's a 10 year deadline, uh, or a 10 year loan from the town. It's also a pretty, a pretty straightforward, but the nice thing is, is that we do have a pretty significant savings in terms of energy cost from switching from the oil to the electric. So I, I would expect we'll have it paid off, uh, sooner than that 10 year period. You sound really happy with the decisions that you made. Have you become kind of Berwick's town crier for <laughs> installing heat pumps in your home? Because there's still a lot of people in town that don't have it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There's <laughs> Despite things being, despite the pandemic, I guess there's, uh, you know, there's definitely people that come over to the house and check out the system that we've got. It's uh, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting uh, system and one that I think could work in a lot of different places. You spoke at the beginning uh, about one of the main reasons for you doing all of this and, and getting the heat pump installed is that you wanted to reduce your carbon footprint. And I'm wondering uh, how it feels now to be to be off of fossil fuels in your home. Yeah, uh, so pretty good so far. I guess we're not exactly off off fossil fuels, but we've definitely made a, a good step forward. Ian, please stay warm through the winter and cool in the summer with your new heat pump. Thank you. Yay. Thank you so much for talking with me and uh, have yourself a lovely day. Ian Manning lives in Berwick, Nova Scotia. For Ian, getting the upfront costs of a heat pump covered was the difference in helping him lower his carbon footprint. But that kind of help isn't available everywhere in the country. Brendan Haley wishes it was. He's the policy director of Efficiency Canada, an organization working to find ways we can use the energy we have more effectively. Brendan Haley, hello. Hello there. Many people might associate efficiency in their homes with, with their appliances so their electricity bills can go down. What is the history of the idea? Well, a lot of energy efficiency, at least in North America, started off in both the electricity and then later the natural gas systems, almost as an alternative to power plants or the, that fuel being purchased. So really thinking of energy efficiency as a resource on that system instead of damming a new river or building a new transmission line. And what, why do you think it's moved into the climate conversation now? Right. Well, right now, I mean, energy efficiency is a huge part of the solution. Um, it reduces greenhouse gas emissions directly. The less fossil fuel we use, we save clean electricity or clean renewable fuels. The more houses we can heat with those clean options. Okay. So, so the, it's not just the idea of your house not using fossil fuels anymore. It's more than that. Yeah, I think really thinking about those systemic impacts of those uh, savings are, are quite important. Okay, let's, let's then focus in on, on heating homes and buildings. How much does that kind of heating contribute to emissions right now? 
the emissions from heating our, our buildings, including the electricity we use, which then produces fossil fuels, is about uh, 17% of emissions in Canada. How, how can changes then to home heating get us closer to the goal of net zero? The more we can save even electricity in those homes, the more we free up a lot of the clean electricity we have in Canada to then power other types of low-carbon solutions, such as electric transportation. Okay, so how, how well would you say the programs that we have in Canada, how well are they working right now to meet that goal? Most Canadian provinces are lagging behind fairly significantly compared to even some of the leading American states. You know, the, the utilities in, in Canada are, you know, some of the better ones are saving around 1% of their fuel demand a year, uh, whereas in the United States, you you know you see uh, um, savings up to you know three percent. You mentioned the United States. Um, is it one of the examples you would look to, or are there are there other places we should we should examine as well? One of the the real groundbreaking things that are happening is is in Europe with what's called a passive house, which is essentially a, a house that is super insulated that its heating demands are quite, quite low. And even in very cold snaps, those houses can, you know, maintain their heat over over even several, several days. And that's actually a, a design that was first started in Saskatchewan, but we never really ran with it, whereas the Europeans did. Um, in Europe, you're also seeing experiments with retrofitting entire neighborhoods all at one time. And that can actually make that whole retrofit process a lot more streamlined, a lot simpler, faster, and, and lower cost. And what about inside Canada? Are there projects here that, that you would point to as, as heading in the right direction? For you know energy savings, we see some fairly aggressive programs, especially on the low-income side in a jurisdiction like Nova Scotia. Um, another key solution is better building codes, is making sure that when we build new buildings, they're built as energy efficient as possible. They're built right the first time. And British Columbia is really leading in that area. They've committed to all new buildings being net zero energy ready by 2032, which means they'll be so efficient, uh, they can easily supply their own energy with renewables. Can you give me a little more detail on what's going on in Nova Scotia that, that you would point to as being a, a, a good example to follow? Back in the sort of late 2000s, uh, Nova Scotia created Canada's first energy efficiency utility. Um, and that is a separate organization uh, which does um, energy efficiency for both electricity, but also you know the heating fuel that's used in that province. And, uh, you know, in some of our tracking of who's saving the most in, in Canada across multiple fuel types, Nova Scotia has, has done quite well um, with that model and really with that political um, commitment to, to energy savings being a, a resource for that province. Okay, that, that is a really good set of examples of, of what can be done. Uh, how common is it, though, for these programs to come, to arrive and be used and then to go away? Yeah, that is a, the traditional problem, I think, with energy efficiency policy. It's been um, a bit boom and bust, and, and therefore it's not actually, I think, shown its true potential because it's not shown somebody that this is a place you can build a career, right? This is, this is something that's going to stay and that you should continue to invest in. So the last major home retrofit project we saw in Canada 
was ramped up after the global financial crisis, but then, you know, fairly quickly ramped down. Um, now, to deal with climate change, we really need to, you know, at least triple the rate of retrofitting over the next number of decades. So having a long-term mission to really think of retrofitting our houses as a huge infrastructure project is, I think, what we need to attract people to build careers in that area, to attract investors to invest in energy savings in the same way that they might have invested in power plants traditionally. So sometimes there are lessons to be learned from the past. You say it ramped up, what, about a dozen years ago and then it ramped down. What happened? I think essentially um, there wasn't a political commitment to maintain that program and, and it was seen a bit as a, a short-term stimulus measure. So it is a lesson for when we're talking about economic stimulus right now. I think energy efficiency is very good economic stimulus because it creates a lot of jobs and secondly, it puts more money in people's pockets. We really need to ramp up the level of efficiency much more to, to tackle the greenhouse gas emission objectives. So a multi-decade mission, you know, almost an energy efficiency mega project um, is really the way uh, we, we need to start thinking about it. Is there an opportunity then for the private sector to get involved? Yes, and that is um, hopefully going to happen to some extent. One of the agendas that I think you'll see with the Canada Infrastructure Bank, which now has a mandate to invest in energy efficiency, is um, hopefully pooling a number of projects together. And when you do that, you get those economies of scale, and you also hopefully allow a, a retrofit portfolio to be of a size that is of interest to institutional investors and, and private investors. A lot of these programs are geared toward individual homeowners, but what about people who are, are, are wanting to rent or are in rental situations? What can they do? The benefits to renters are quite substantial, even if they don't pay their own utility bills. You know, that the huge benefit of energy efficiency is, is comfort, access to adequate heating services, access to adequate cooling services. And there are programs out there that have creatively found ways to retrofit multi-unit residential houses and that can be paid off creatively by replacing essentially what would have been the utility bill with paying off those efficiency costs over time or even um, having covenants after an upgrade to make sure that there's not a rent increase as a result of that efficiency upgrade. Yeah, that would seem kind of critical. I, I mean, I can think of um, people renting um, places here in Vancouver where the cost is so high um, and adding the, the cost of heating your home on top of that would be pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah, and, and we find that, I mean, one thing we talk about is, um, is energy burden. So finding a way to decrease those energy burdens um, for, for low-income populations, for rental populations, but also doing that in a way that promotes more affordable housing, more affordability is really key. We, we, we haven't addressed the actual fuel that's being used in homes, and we know it can vary from oil and diesel and to more commonly use natural gas. Now, if we really want to reduce household emissions, don't we need to get off natural gas altogether? Yeah, I think there's a, a consensus that that type of heating needs needs to be phased out. Um, I think the the energy transition debate um, you hear is concerning people's expectations regarding the role of electric heat 
versus heating fuels by some form of renewable natural gas or, or hydrogen, right? And so the, the criticism often leveled against mass electrification or electrify everything is that the existing electricity grids won't be able to handle that heating demand. The criticism that can be leveled on something like renewable natural gas is that there isn't enough feedstock available. I guess the point I would make in that debate is that reducing heating demand first and foremost through things like insulation and air sealing makes both of those potential problems much easier. Brendan Haley, thank you so much for your time and for your insights. Thanks. Pleasure. Brendan Haley is the Policy Director of Efficiency Canada. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Retrofitting, buying heat pumps, they're both solutions for those who can afford them. But there are many, many others who struggle just to pay heating bills. I'm Maryam Rosai, and I'm a researcher and an independent consultant working on energy equity and access issues in Canada. Energy poverty is the inability to meet one's energy needs. That might be not being able to heat their home to a comfortable temperature. If people can't afford their heating bills or if they feel that their heating bills are a significant energy burden for them, um, they might choose to do different things about it. They might forego other necessities or they may choose not to heat to a comfortable temperature in their home and live in an uncomfortable home. And so that obviously has comfort implications but can also have health implications, particularly for households with really young children um, and older adults or people with existing health conditions. Um, There is um, moisture issues and dampness issues as well as lack of heating. Then we might have um, mold problems in the house. Households that experience energy poverty in Canada are quite diverse. There are low-income households who struggle with the affordability of many things, including the energy services. But there are certainly moderate-income households who also struggle with this. And if um, a household happens to live in a larger house that is not performing well in terms of energy efficiency, um, their energy bills might be higher compared to their income. Miriam also says people living in remote areas can end up paying a lot for the energy they use. For some, diesel is all that's available and it can be expensive. Yo gatwas kanugwa hilschnugwa gachla latas waglisla. So I just said my name is Gatwas, I'm Hilschuch, and I live in Waglisla, which is currently known as Bella Bella, on the central coast of British Columbia. Gatwas Brown is the community engagement coordinator for the Heltzik Climate Action Team. The Heltzik First Nation has installed heat pumps. And by the end of March, they will be in 129 homes as part of the community's climate action work to get off diesel. Gatwas Brown, hello. Yo. 
So let's start with the heat pumps. There will be, as I said, 129 of them installed by the end of March. Why is it important to the community to get off diesel? Well, for us, it's really important to get off fuel. There's numerous reasons because currently we have a large reliance on diesel. And with that, it was costs, health. It also ties into um, the housing crisis that exists within the Hillshire community. Let's go through the things that you mentioned one by one. Most of these homes, they've been using diesel. Um, diesel has to be brought in by barge, and that's something that the health sick don't really like very much. They don't like barges around their community. No. So basically, we want to be our politics, and we know that fuel is one of the main causes of climate change, and we are a climate-forward nation. One of our main goals is to reduce and hopefully eliminate our reliance on diesel, and we do not want big barges going through a community that hold crude oil. And the spill that did happen that didn't actually have an entire barge full of diesel, it could have been a major catastrophe and it still hit us really hard and it was an eye-opener. Were you in the community when that diesel spill happened? No, I wasn't. I was okay. actually away for school. Do you remember what people were telling you about it at the time and what your reaction was? It was really scary. My family was still here and I remember just being woken up and people going out to the grounds is in Gokwe, which is um, our main commercial harvesting area for clams. And I've been a part of the team who's gone out there and we've turned over the beach and just smelling the beach and seeing how different it now is. It's something that we don't ever want to happen within our territory again which is another very good reason for wanting to get rid of diesel as a fuel. So when you look at home efficiency, for me, not everybody starts in the same place. And Indigenous people in Canada, there is huge housing crisis and the Hillstruck First Nation isn't sheltered from that. Even though we are a very strong nation who pushes forward for our people, we're still affected. And one thing that happened when INAC, which was Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, it's now Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. They put in their housing programs and policies. You had inadequate housing, subpar housing coming into reservations. And now what we're trying to do is we're trying to switch that. We're working outside of that INAC housing regime. Our climate action team, our resource management department, our tribal council, we're all working together to look beyond the scope of INAC and to build adequate housings for, for our community that work within this climate and also heat our homes in ways that are efficient and effective with renewable clean energy sources, such as electricity. Right. I, I, and you, you mentioned earlier something that was really interesting to me. I understand that, that a lot of those houses were built years ago and, and they're not particularly good buildings. Um, so one of the other benefits, I suppose, of this switch to, to heat pumps is in terms of people's health and, and mold. Is that right? Yeah, mold is a major thing in our community. It affects the health of our community members. And again, that goes back to when Canada decided the kind of housing that would be put in place on reserves. And so then when you look at energy efficiency for those homes, home efficiency, that wasn't even a conversation Canada had for Indigenous people. Because 
our humanization was was viewed as subpar to Canada. And that's a conversation that we're trying to change. Our people deserve adequate homes, well-heated homes, and renewable energy sources. What kind of a house did you grow up in? The kind of house I grew up in is an INAC home. Um, the same kind of house I'm sitting in right now. <laughs> <laughs> and how was it heated? Um, I actually have a heat pump in my home and um, I like it. It saves us a lot of money. I live with my parents. I'm 31 years old and I have a university degree from University of Victoria and I work and I'm in school full time. But even if there was a place I wanted to rent, there's nothing available in our community. But now that you're seeing these heat pumps coming in, um, do, do you notice that it, that it is, is having a significant impact on people's lives? Is it, is it improving their lives? I mean, you talked already about the mold and, the le and less cost. Well, I think one of the things for the heat pumps is that it filters the air. So it actually pulls in air and it's a constant filtration so that it's really good for people with asthma and allergies. It's good for the homes for the mold issue. So it is improving the health. Um, the heat pumps are creating jobs for our community. So we are have Hailstroke heat pump technicians and they're also in the process of certifying Hailstroke energy advisors. And can you tell me how much of a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions and diesel use are you seeing already? Switching to the heat pumps actually reduces our communal fuel consumption by 2,000 litres um, of diesel per house per year. And so one home switching to heat pumps eliminates five tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions annually. That uh, must be cause for to make you smile, considering the line of work you're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. It's something that we celebrate here in Hilschuch territories. Our goal and vision for Hilschuch climate action is that it's climate solutions for and by Hilschuch people. That we have these solutions within our community that go back to our original teachings of ways of existing in relationship with our place in the world and utilizing knowledge of the 21st century around renewable green energy sources and bringing that to our community. And we're planning for our future generations so that we can tell them as this first generation that has been witnessing climate change happening before our eyes, that we can say we did something about it, that their futures mattered to us. It's not just about the Hilstuch community. It's not just about indigenous communities being their politics, but it's about all people and the way in which we interact with our environment. What is our energy consumption and how can we change that? How can we have conversations with our families about the type of world that we want to live and exist in? Not many communities are as far ahead as yours. I'm wondering what advice you would have for, for people listening and considering this. Yeah, well, I think that it is really important for any communities. Like one of the things that I learned through this work is that within BC, rural, remote and Indigenous communities are paying three times as much for energy as the rest of the province. So it's a real thing for remote people. And a lot of remote people are Indigenous communities. And our team were part of the Indigenous Off Diesel Initiative. And through that, we've been able to network. And my advice is actually just connecting with other people who hold this knowledge and having these conversations 
because why reinvent the wheel? That's something that we did. We actually, through the Indigenous Off Diesel Initiative, was we were partnered with a mentor, and she taught us a lot about what she had done with an Arctic community and how they were successful in reducing their reliance on diesel. And so it wasn't like we started from square one. We looked at what other people were doing. That's really good advice. Thank you very much for your time. Gatwas Brown is the Community Engagement Coordinator for the Health Climate Action Team. So we've talked about getting off diesel and getting rid of the old oil furnace. But what about that other fossil fuel? Natural gas accounts for nearly half the energy used in Canadian homes and a third of all energy used in Canada. It's growing in popularity in parts of the world that are phasing out coal, but falling from favour elsewhere. Our Lisa Johnson looks at the history of the name natural gas and how that name fuels how we think about it today. It seems like natural gas stands out among fossil fuels. When companies promote it in ads today, they make a case for its environmental benefits, at least compared to coal. The way that we use natural gas is actually reducing emissions. Well, it gives you a pathway to a cleaner future. And compared to coal, this will surely cut the emission level. That had me wondering whether the name, natural gas, was part of some modern branding exercise. But it turns out it goes back nearly 200 years. The term natural gas doesn't appear until 1825, I think. That's Trish Stewart, a science editor at the Oxford English Dictionary. People had known about a flammable gas in the ground for a long time. But the name natural gas pops up then because another gas, called manufactured gas, had just recently started lighting the streets of London, Paris and Baltimore, Maryland with gas lamps. So there's this distinction between gas that you have to distill or you have to make out of coal and this gas that comes straight from the ground that you're able to use to light um, a room or to heat things. The 1820s is also when we see the first record of a city on the shores of Lake Erie in New York State tapping into gas from nearby burning springs for lighting. So they needed the two terms, natural gas and manufactured gas, to tell the two substances apart. I brought out my 4,000-page dictionary. Natural, natural, natural. Okay, born, natural food, natural gas. And found it under the sense of natural that means not manufactured. Natural gas, a flammable gaseous fossil fuel that occurs naturally underground and is chiefly composed of methane. But of course, natural has a lot of meanings, covering three columns of my dictionary and stretching back to Middle English, centuries before there was a natural food aisle at the grocery store. Many have had a pretty positive association, something innate or free from affectation. There's this idea that what is natural is somehow superior to perhaps what is made by humans. So that's the history of where the natural in natural gas comes from. A study last year showed the effect it has today on how we perceive this fossil fuel. Remember how natural gas is chiefly composed of methane. It's uh, 70 to 90 percent methane. Karine Lacroix is a postdoctoral associate with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. She and colleagues surveyed about 2,000 people and compared what they associated with the term natural gas 
versus methane gas or natural methane gas. The difference was stark. The feelings that people had about natural gas were mainly positive. But on the other hand, when we asked about methane gas, the feelings were mostly negative. Even though, remember, they are mostly the same thing. In the survey, respondents associated natural gas with eco-friendly, warmth, cooking. Methane gas, not so positive. The number one answer was cows and cow farts. Cow farts and burps and climate. But then that association with cows, it went even further because uh, quite a few people mentioned global warming when they heard about methane gas. That matters, says Lacroix, because attitudes are a key part of how we make decisions. On a personal level, how we cook or heat our home, and on a global level, what role natural gas should have in a carbon-constrained future. You know, this is, this is a very divisive issue among people in the world of uh, energy politics and energy policy. Michael Ross is a political scientist at UCLA who works on climate change and natural resources. On one hand, it's true that burning natural gas is better in terms of emissions than any other fossil fuel. That's why oil and gas companies and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change say compared to coal-fired power, natural gas can cut emissions and be what's called a bridge to a low-carbon world. But there is uncertainty to that advantage when you factor in methane leaks and numerous studies have shown burning more natural gas makes it harder to meet climate targets. You know, energy analysts were rightly concerned that our dependence on coal would be replaced by dependence on natural gas, which is a little bit better, but not nearly enough of an improvement to really protect us from catastrophic climate change. So I think it's time has passed as a so-called bridge fuel for this reason, there are environmental groups who call natural gas just gas, or even fossil gas. Whatever the name, Karin Lacroix at Yale hopes at least for better public understanding of what it is. Ideally, we should not find such a huge gap between feelings about natural gas and feelings about methane gas. Those should be very closely related. And if we could correct that misperception, Perhaps people would think twice about their energy choices. Of course, that's just one of the factors, but that certainly has a role to play. That does it for us this week. And if you missed any of today's show, just head over to CBC Listen. All of our shows are available on demand or as podcasts. And give us a review. It helps move the climate conversation forward. Time now to thank our team, associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our technician. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.